Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Palmer bet on the edge of the box. Oh, it's a straight up screamer. Download our app today and enjoy straight up screamers this FIFA World Cup with great odds, great promos and same game multi at Palmerbet. Gamble responsibly. For gambler's help, call 1-800-858-858. Aussies only. Thanks to GLG Green Life Group. Leaders in property services and open space management at glgcorp.com. Hello and welcome to Aussies Only. It's your host, Jed Zetzer, with you today. And in this edition of the show, I'll be joined by former pro player turned coach, Sarah Stone. Sarah was born into a tennis family in Melbourne and has embarked on a remarkable tennis journey, which has seen her play and coach at the highest level. I won't keep you waiting any longer. Let's get straight into the show. Here is Sarah Stone. Thanks for having me, Jed. I'm super excited to talk everything Aussies only with you. Thank you so much for joining me, Sarah. I'm going to get straight into it because there's so much to get through. I don't want to waste any time. Well, firstly, it's an absolute pleasure to have you on and we're going to get all into your tennis career and your journey shortly. But the first question I want to ask you is, can you tell us a little bit about where you grew up? I grew up in Hawthorne, basically. I grew up pretty much at Grace Park Hawthorne Club since I could remember doing anything. My dad was the coach there. He's been there for 42 years and I just turned 40. So life's always been centred around that club and grew up practising in Melbourne at the VIS and doing state squads and things like that. And I'm definitely a Melbourne girl and a diehard Hawks fan. Love it. Absolutely love it. The Hawks are going well this season. On and off, on and off. I don't know where we're going to get to, but regardless, win, lose or draw, I love them. It's great to hear. Um, You mentioned your father's a tennis coach. Is that sort of how you first got into tennis? Was that your first connection to tennis? Yeah, basically. My dad was down there. My brother had lessons before I didn't. What my mum said was that I just kept bugging my parents when I was about three that I wanted to get started. My brother was six. He started a little later than me. I do believe that that's where it all started, going down to Grace Park, joining in a little group when I was about three years old, dragging a racket around. And when your dad's a tennis coach, my, my parents met at a tennis tournament. That means the tennis is pretty much in our blood. My brother's a coach. Uh, my older brother plays as well. It wasn't that there was no other choice. It was a choice that I made, but I was very much around it all the time. And I think that put a, played a pretty heavy influence on how I got into tennis and stayed in the industry. The tennis is definitely in your blood. So growing up, <laughs> um, you know, you, the way your life's turned out, tennis is a major part of your life nowadays. And it always has been. I mean, you're a professional player turned coach. When did you first realise being a professional player, when did you first realise that you were better than just the average tennis player your age? That's an interesting question. No one's ever asked me that one before, actually. And I think it was, I had no idea. My dad had no idea. I was playing along, started to do okay. 
in some of the early tournaments. I remember I think the very first tournament I played, I lost in the final at Hawthorne Tennis Club against a girl a couple of years older than me and I guess my dad thought that I was doing all right. Got, uh, my level was good, entered me in a few more tournaments, played the schoolgirls, had good results. I was about, I would say I was probably 10 and I got invited to the state squad and Peter Johnson was the coach and he was a mate of my dad's and I loved it, loved the practice. I love Jono. That's, he's actually been, I've never really thought about it that much. One of the really influential people in my tennis journey is that was the first sort of squad coach that I had. And he's just to this day, amazing guy. And I loved being there and that, that played a part in why I really enjoyed the sport. So I guess it was when I got invited into that state squad and then I got picked to go to New Caledonia. I went on my first overseas trip when I was 10. Paul Henry Matthew, who went on to be an amazing player, he was on that junior trip from France. Wow. Another girl, Samantha Chaffel, did really well. Um, Julian Benito, some people will know him. He is the current mm-hmm. Fed Cup captain, great player. He was on that trip as well. So all of a sudden I was getting to see good players around from France. I thought, oh, maybe... No, I must be okay, and and it sort of sort of went from there. I went to Wesley on a tennis scholarship, got into the VIS, and I realised maybe I, I'm at that upper level because I was. That's sort of where I, I guess, where I was ranked. So I thought, well, that's probably a starting point from where you develop as a player, and maybe I've got a shot. Absolutely, it sounded like it sort of all just happened one step after another. Once, you know, you got noticed, you were sort of, it was one step after the next to get you to that level. When did you first actually want to be a pro? When did that fire start burning within you to actually want to become a pro tennis player? That's a funny question because it it kind of went up and down. Half the time I didn't, half the time I didn't. When I was a kid, I was obsessed with Steffi Graf and I would watch every single match. I had every Steffi outfit and my dad actually coached a player who was, her name was Barbara Potter. She was ranked number seven in the world. And at Wimbledon, she got Steffi to sign a couple of programs for me. And you know, that just sort of hooked me on just being obsessed with pro tennis. And I used to sing myself this little song about winning Wimbledon when I reckon I was about eight or nine. And I think that was the only time that I really thought I want to be a pro tennis player. But when I was really involved in the process, in the squads, doing all of that, at that time, I don't think I actually really wanted to be a pro tennis player. I think I thought, oh, well, that's just what's going to happen. Like that's the natural path from where I am. That's what people talk about around me. And that's what my friends that are a little bit older are doing. So I guess that's what happens. And I played my first pro tournament. I think I was 13 maybe or 14. I went to Mount Gambia and played a 25K qualies, won my first round in qualies, and that, that was pro. So I don't know. It's funny because I didn't, I didn't have this burning ambition to be number one in the world or play Grand Slams or anything like that other than when I was a very little kid. That was about it. And, and I actually didn't enjoy playing. I, it was okay. I love travelling around the world. I didn't have that incredible, desperate desire to be number one in the world. I just enjoyed the sport. I enjoyed my friends. I enjoyed the the life. And um, I wish I loved the sport more, but I think sometime during my development, there was some coaches around me that 
didn't make me feel great about who I was and, and the way that I approached the sport didn't understand me, the way that I learned best and, and it really kind of took the fun out of it and I think that's why that dream didn't really evolve for me to that, that bigger picture and why I was pretty young and easily able to step away from the game and transition into coaching. It's crazy because you're still in tennis, so it's great to hear that it hasn't that the love for the sport didn't die out there. Um, but when did you first decide that coaching was possibly for you and that might be the next step for you? When did that sort of start becoming a possibility? I was about 14 when my dad first threw me in to do, help out with a couple of private lessons and then doing a little bit of coaching as you do a bit after school. Uh, I think I, I like people. I, I thought about being a psychologist or a vet and they're, they're the two things helping others, helping animals or, or people that I liked. And I really didn't realise until later, speaking to my brother's girlfriend, that it was all about the relationships and that's what I got out of it. So I was pretty young when I enjoyed helping people a lot. And I just thought, oh, I was 21, I got injured. Uh, I'd been playing doubles with Sam Stozer at the time and she didn't have a coach. We got along pretty well and well, maybe I was a little bit older than that, just sort of transitioned into that sort of role with Sam and, and thought, oh, it's something I enjoy. I, I'm quite a selfless person. I like giving to others and I think being a tennis player doesn't exactly go with my nature it's, it's quite a selfish self-centered sort of thing that you have to do and you have to do that that's the way it is but that's not really who I am as a person so if you recognize that then you can think about what's the best part of this industry for me to be part of and the joy of helping others is something that I love so it's, it's quite early on but after working with Sam I thought yeah that's I want to keep doing that and I, I kept doing it and I'm still doing it today I changed a lot from pros to beginners to different areas of the industry, which it keeps me, I guess, interested and not stagnant. But yeah, I just I love that helping people, and it's always been something that's been part of me. Certainly, I was going to say there's a big difference between helping, you know, juniors, um, players who don't aspire to go pro, to players then who are either aspiring to go pro or, or who are already pro. I've heard a lot of tennis coaches who sort of go through phases where they don't want to coach players who aspire to go pro and then they'll possibly go through a, t a period of time where they need to be sort of coaching a player that is aspiring to go pro. Do you mind sort of just for the average person who isn't a tennis coach explaining how, you know, explaining that mindset and how it can shift? It's a great question. That, that is the reality. Most coaches kind of go from wanting that consistency where players, young players show up, they have their lesson, they go home, and then that's the end. You don't have to do any follow-up. And that's great. And it's consistent. You know they're going to be there. But there's not that engagement where you really are able to dig into hard work because they're not wanting that out of the lesson. They're there for fun. They're there for being with their friends. So that's a completely different experience over working with a player and having sort of a journey like you're trying to achieve these goals. I think you have to look at it. They both have purpose, but it just really depends where you want to focus your attention and what drives you. 
when you work with a young player who wants to be a pro, there may be purpose in that because there's so much that 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 involves and you become quite close to that player because you're most of the time, apart from their parents, the closest person in their life. And then with a kid, they just kind of come and go from junior lessons. I think most tennis coaches like coaching good players. And the reason behind that is that most good players are very dedicated and they're there because they want to be there. Young students are just kind of there for their friends. They don't really care if they're there. They don't listen as much. It's not really about tennis. And that can be kind of frustrating because it it feels unproductive. And you can't get much rally. Like it's it's very repetitive. It's feed a ball, try to make contact with a ball. And that, that can be hard if that's all you do. It, it, you just got to work out in the industry what your passion is. If you love helping little kids just get coordinated and find their confidence, well, that's you. You're more in that younger space. It's not about best coaches coach top level. We need best coaches at the young level as well to develop players to even stay in the sport. But I think ideally the workplace could be more flexible and organisations could allow for you to coach younger players and older players so the environment is a little bit more stimulating. It seems to be what all coaches are looking for. And the other reason is that in the more advanced junior space, kids come and go. They sort of sometimes are looking for a magic wand. It becomes a coach's fold or their friend's doing well with another coach, so they go to that coach. They they sort of coach hop. And that can be... You can even experience grief in that if you're quite invested in a player's journey and then they just up and leave. That can be quite difficult to deal with emotionally. It's like losing a job or ending a relationship. And there can be coaches that just get burnt by that and then just step away from wanting to do that for a while and they go back to a more consistent space. And when they kind of honestly emotionally recover, they might gravitate back towards doing that higher performance. So I think it's it's quite a complex answer, but there are a lot of things that make coaches move and shift around with, with the players they want to work with. Certainly not. It's funny, I was about to ask you how difficult is it when you're investing so much time into an athlete and then the relationship ends, how difficult is that? And you've just answered it there. It's, it's, it's a crazy dynamic because you can be going, you know, you can see someone five days a week and then all of a sudden it just ends um, and there's no real connection there anymore. It just sort of ends on the spot. Um, I was going to ask you as well in regards to your coaching. So you are the CEO of the WTCA, the Women's Tennis Coaching Association. Um, do you mind explaining to us how that came about, how you got into the role and day-to-day, what what is your role? I got into that role over a, a bag of lollies as two of my two best friends I'm lucky enough to work with, Betty Sekulowski and Nicole Kriz. Nick and I were chatting about what was going on with the tour. She was working for Tennis Australia and I was on tour coaching a player and I said to her, oh, I wish you were out here more with me. I feel like I'm one of the only females and, and that's that's not right and we need to do something about it. She said, okay, what do you think? I said, well, how about we start with a bit more visibility of just women's tennis? Like I would I would look in social media or the newspaper and there was like such so so few articles or or posts about women's tennis in those feeds. 
and I started with drills and I thought, how can I impact that and get more women coaches to the top of our sport? It would start with bringing in male coaches who are advocates for women. And if we can create an environment where women felt included and could thrive, I think we could elevate women in our, in our coaching. So we went the path of creating a nonprofit in the US, moving on then to hosting conferences for that experience and that sense of community being together to drive that energy. And through having those great male coaches, women felt like there was a place for them too because it was that was a huge part of the mission. It was about women's tennis. It wasn't about women coaches. It was about creating that environment and, and helping coaches understand what are the best ways to work with female players. Example, like how to talk about periods with players or what injuries are girls more susceptible to communication strategies. I had an issue last week with a, a grade two junior school kids and they had become really good friends and then suddenly they didn't speak to each other. And I said to them both, well, why aren't you speaking? And one said, well, she's not speaking to me. And the other one said, well, she's not speaking to me. And then that I could see it. But if you don't pay attention to that with groups of girls, all of a sudden your group splits like you have to nip it straight away if the same thing doesn't typically happen with boys with with female athletes and what groups of girls do social pressure these sorts of things that boys don't quite deal with as frequently and to hope that that created an environment where male and female coaches came together and women coaches would get the confidence and thrive and then we would see more women coaches on tour and it worked. It's worked really well. The industry has shifted quite a lot in education and we're very proud to be the start of that movement. And there's many more women coaches on tour now. There needs to be many, many more and there need to be more women coaching male players as well. But, you know, it took a long time to get to where we are. I did it. I thought that I had a social network to bring my, my crew together to make change together. And I think that that's what you need need to do if you ever want to make a change in something you need to be able to tap into a, a pretty strong network bringing together you know, Justine Hennon or, or Billie Jean King Lindsay Davenport together with the president of the WTCA we, we tapped into our favors and and those people stepped up and have allowed us to create a movement so it's something I'm very proud of nowadays I don't quite have as much time I moved back to Australia and I'm heavily involved in directing a champion academy it's a full-time tennis academy in melbourne which it is a startup so it requires a lot of my brain space and and as a result i've had less time for the wtca but we'll continue to do that work and, and work with others in the us and we'll have a conference in september and uh, i'm looking to sort of figure out what the next steps are for that jed i'm not sure at the moment but we, it's still going. Everything's going great. We need to inject some some different options into continuing to grow that. But any startup's hard. Well, I was going to say, so you're CEO of the WTCA and you're also juggling being the director of tennis at the Champion Academy, which you started here in Melbourne. How do you juggle both roles? Because they're both massive roles um, in itself. <laughs> yeah. And then you're both at the same time. How, how are you juggling it? Not enough sleep. <laughs> Forgetting yesterday I couldn't remember where I put my tennis bag, but I did leave it in my car. To be honest, it's very hard. 
And moving back to Australia is something that I wanted to do. I wanted to spend more time with my family. I'd been away. I'm an American citizen now, 11, 11 and a half years. I think it was fantastic. And I brought so much back from having that international experience, seeing the way that they do things very well and the way that we do some things better. And I've brought that to the academy. I, I do that. Debbie Carr is the CEO and, and she's done a great job of bringing myself and Betty Sekulowski in to head up that team. We have a good team there. So there's a good solid fire. And Farina does a fitness, six of us. Um, also Andy and Callum. So it's actually eight of us that really do that. That makes my life a bit easier. I need to give more time to the WTCA. The thing that why I've been lucky and very unlucky is the pen obviously stopped that momentum with the WTCA because we're based on live events experiences and it allowed me to dig into developing the academy here because we couldn't do live events we don't do a whole lot of online education that's not really what we're about we're not about certifying coaches with the WTCA we're about an online exchange of ideas and community and doing live events so realistically September is the first time we could do a big live event so now that the uh, champion academy is pretty locked in and that's that's got it ground underneath it now I can go back a little bit more towards the WTCA and, and make sure that everything runs smoothly so yeah it's really really hard but I guess some of the most successful people are able to take on a lot of tasks and and are decently high functioning so it's just about getting the right support to make sure everything goes the way you want it to absolutely well, now it's awesome that you're able to juggle both roles and that you haven't had to give one up for the other um, you've mentioned that you're in the States for 11 years. Do you mind just expanding on that and sort of explaining why you were there and what you did in those 11 years? I definitely there by accident. I had a ticket back to the States for personal reasons and I thought, well, I might as well go for that and, and head over there. And I didn't really know what I was doing. I didn't want to work for my dad in Melbourne. And I'd come off tour. I didn't want to coach on the tour anymore either, as we already spoke about. It, it goes ebbs and flows with what you want to do as a coach. I needed to sort of step away from that. And I had the opportunity to go back to the States and I thought about coaching college tennis. So that's originally why I went. I planned on going for three months just to see if I liked it. Amy Jensen was a friend and she was at the University of Denver and I, I stepped in in a volunteer assistant capacity. And she moved on from that and we both coached, just decided to stay and coach privately at a, at a club there, was enjoying the US. And one, uh, three months became you know, 11 and a half years. It just kind of, I just followed that journey. I enjoyed working in a country club kind of environment. It was different to Australia. I tell you what the big draw was is in the United States, sports coaches are revered like superstars. and. I love it. They'll call you coach. Sometimes in Australia, people say, oh, what's your job? Oh, you're a tennis coach. Oh, what's your real job? It's not thought of as the same. And, and the funny thing is you can be earning 100K more than that person who thinks that they've got a real corporate job, but yours isn't a real job. And the, the, the clients were very respectful and, and I loved that environment. So I stayed in it, started coaching a player privately worked for a family which was something I never had the opportunity to do in Australia the investment from families in Australia they feel like it's really significant it's seriously like a drop in the ocean compared to what happens in the US so many players have a one-on-one -on -one 
coach that works for the family. And I loved it. I worked for a family, the Middletons, and and the, the daughter, Alex, stopped, and the son's now at, at the University of Arizona doing really, really well. I think he'll go on to be a great player, Jet. And that was the path I followed from there. And, and from there, I accidentally slipped back into coaching professional players. I didn't think I would do it, but I met a player at a club. Uh, her name's Alexa Glatch. And I said, do you want to just hit some balls? Because I was working for the family and I was working after hours. And we hit some balls during the day and I liked her game and believed that she could do really well. And that was uh, that became a, a, a six-year coaching journey, six- or eight-year coaching journey. And at the, at the end of that coaching journey when she'd been injured, I thought, you know, I really want to go back and make an impact on Australian tennis. And and that's what I did. So from thinking about coaching college to going back to tour to coming back to making an impact in Australian tennis, you never really know where your life's going to go and, and what you're going to do. I think you just follow the path that unfolds before you and make your best choices at the time that you make them. And, and don't feel like you have to be too locked, particularly coaches don't feel too locked into this is the end or this is what I'm doing. It's always in flux and things are always changing. So, yeah, that was a journey. I loved the US. I really, really miss it. So many things about work there and confidence and drive and success. There's no such thing as tall puppy syndrome in the United States. Everyone wants you to be successful and they're they're your cheerleaders. They encourage success as healthy competition to help them be more successful. And here we battle you know, not working together, competing. We don't want you to do well. Nobody wants anyone to do well. I know it's a blanket statement, but that's sort of the tall poppy culture that we're aware of. And if we can inject a bit of that more, more of everyone's success breeds success, I think we'd do a lot better in tennis across our country. Absolutely. And obviously you're taking those life lessons and all the education that you got in America and you've brought it here to Australia, which is extremely valuable in terms of the current state of Australian tennis, you know, the champion tennis Academy, you guys started that up to, I guess, have an influence on these younger players and and help the system. Do you mind sort of letting us in on your thoughts on at the moment? We only do, we do only have one female in the top 100 um, from an Australian point of view. Do you mind letting us know what you are hoping to do as a coach to increase those numbers and what you think could be done to increase those numbers? It's a big answer. It's it's also complex. I think, well, Isla's not Australian-born, so honestly she developed it, Evidence Academy and came here as a full-fledged developed professional. So I don't even think we can factor that we have one. From a developmental standpoint, we don't have one player. She's a great girl. Nothing against Isla. She's awesome. Uh, the thing is, is that we've had, we've gone through COVID. Our restrictions were insane. And so for the last two years, that's really halted any great development. Our players are behind. And I've spoken a lot to Paul Vasallo about what the, what the idea was, turning tennis a little bit back to the private sector. And I think that that was the right thing to do. I definitely do. It, it feels very fragmented at the moment tennis in Australia that that concept is still trying to find its feet it's quite young um, there was that restructure I would have loved to see Nicole Pratt stay in 
a senior role in women's tennis. I think that she she's a fantastic coach, great person, great leader, had a great team put together. Um, that that role changed to having one person oversee both. So in that regard, I would have I would have preferred to, that we had someone specifically responsible and in, not invested, but that that was that that was their gig. That's what I would have done. Turning it out to the private sector for development is really good because the private coaches stay involved. One of the issues is, is that private coaches then end up coaching a lot of times when in the performance space, 40 hours of privates, they'll be charging somewhere between 90 and 100 and whatever, 150 bucks an hour to do privates. And if you times 100, 150 by 40 hours, they're making really good money. And then when you put that into a group scenario, which is what Betty and I have done, that's a whole different beast because our country is not used to that. We're not used to the structure of academies. And the reason that Betty and I wanted to do that rather than coaching two, three privates a week, we want to see players for you know 12 hours a week. If I was coaching a player on a professional tour, I'd be with them 15 to 20 hours a week on court or fitness or whatever. I'd have eyes over them. And then in that development, if I only get to see a player two hours a week for private, it, it doesn't work. No one's going to be good. So that's going to take time. That's going to take a shift. That's going to take, and I think people are starting to do that a little bit on the back of, we've designed what we're doing a little bit more based on the way that American academies work. And it was a risk. At the start, we had a couple of kids and they were invested. They were kids, Betty and I sort of coached privately. And now we're up to about 26 different kids that come in and practice during and, and pros that play during the day. Not on every day. We have between eight and 14 come to sessions, which is when you get to 14, you, you really create a really good training environment where they feel like they're all part of something and, and they become a little bit of a family. So that's the approach that, we, that we've done differently. I think the squads at the... NDS definitely are important to get the upper kids in there doing their thing together, bring them together from different private academies. The thing that I would like to see is a, a lower player to coach ratio in that environment. I understand that that costs money, but if you got a little bit of a free-for-all feeling as you find your way, I think that players can get lost in that. Uh, sometimes there's players that let us know that the whole time they were there a coach didn't say anything to them now we don't think that players need coaching every minute but if you're going in there and you've got eyes over you well you need you kind of want a little bit of information even if it's just encouragement it doesn't have to be technical it might be you're moving well i can see you're getting better you're being more aggressive whatever it is but they need that touch point and i think that's really difficult if you've got I don't know the ratio, so I can't comment on it, but I just know that there's, from my view, too many players compared to coaches, and I think that in a in a national academy program, you should have lower numbers with players. And I think the Brisbane program, it's had a lot of change. I think they've got a great staff there. I would love to see more female coaches. I do not think that we have enough female coaches at the top of our sport. I, I think we have one. Oh, no, maybe one or two in the pro space. We need equal. We need 50-50. And that's just, that's just has to happen. 
So I think the idea is good. I think the concept takes time. I, I do hope that they don't change it again. I hope that stays. I hope they stick with the private coaches being involved with the players. And we do need something, and the gap that we feel like we're filling is the basically 15 to 20 kids that aren't at that level to go to the national program in Brisbane. That's fine. You can only pick a certain number, but there has to be something else for them. And that is what we do. And we keep our numbers at max four to one. It's often three or two to one. And 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 that's the way that I would like to see it go. So hopefully that answers your question. But yeah, I think that will help drive a lot more players. But if we don't have the program to bring players through, well, we're going to be in a lot of trouble. And I, and I don't know how that's going to change other than the private sector stepping up and taking a little bit of a risk to create group environments. We answered that perfectly. <laughs> it's, it's a very deep question because there's so many different answers to it as well. So you've given a great perspective there to, to how it all works and your opinion on it, which is awesome. Sarah, we're running out of time, but before we do end this podcast, I've got to ask you, and it's probably a difficult question for you to answer just because you probably have connections with a lot of the pro players, but currently, who is your favourite player to watch and why? We were all devastated that Ash went a different direction because Ash was my favourite to watch. Absolutely. I, and she's just a great person, a great role model. So I'm part of the crew that's pretty gutted about that, the global crew that's gutted. I would say Angebeur. I've always loved watching Anz. She's a great, really great girl, and I've loved watching her grow as a player, development. The team around her is fantastic. I love the, the game that she plays. I think that is the game. I think it's even you know, her and Ash play quite similar games. You know, Anz probably nails her forehand a little bit bigger than Ash did, but, you know, Ash works in different things. I think Ons will be, I don't know if she is already number one in the world, and I can see Ons winning a couple of Grand Slams. She's just, yeah, she's she's my favourite and I love, and my, if my friends are around, I don't have as many friends playing now. I'm, I'm old, older. My friends have finally retired. Even though Serena and Venus are older than me, but most of my friends have retired. I love to watch Rafa. He's, he's been my favourite forever. I, I, he's, he's lovely to everyone. The way he carries himself is, is incredible. And he, he is very humble and respectful of other players. And I love the way he goes about his business. He's, he's a fantastic ambassador for our sport. They're my two favourites. And hopefully we get to see Rafa for a little while yet. But who knows? It may be coming to a close. I love those answers. Ons is an amazing player to watch. She's so unique. I think you're right. She's got all the the ingredients to make an absolute champion. So, yeah, I love that answer. Absolutely love it. Sarah, thank you so much for joining me. Really appreciate you taking the time out of what is one of the busiest schedules of any of the guests I've spoken to. So I really do appreciate it. And just keep doing what you're doing because we need more people like you in Australian tennis. Uh, same goes, Jed. It's great that you're having the conversation. You're a foot leader and I really enjoyed talking to you and can't wait to listen to all the interviews that you do going forward into the future. Well, Aussies only listeners, Sarah Stone, what a remarkable person and what an unbelievable tennis journey she has had and will continue to have going into the future. It was amazing to get the chance to speak to Sarah and I look forward to hopefully having her back on the show very soon. 
If you haven't yet, be sure to tune in to some of the previous editions of the show with some more incredible guests. But for now, First Serve and Aussies Only followers, thank you so much for tuning in to this week's edition of Aussies Only. The First Serve is your home of tennis at thefirstserve.com.au. Log on to find out all the details of our live radio show, other podcasts, read weekly features by our team of writers, and follow us on social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, and subscribe to our YouTube channel. I'm in, I'm in, I'm in, I'm in, in it to win it. Want to witness the world's biggest football game? Head to iCanWin.com.au, predict Australia's score with a crystal ball, and it could be you and a friend at the FIFA World Cup Qatar 2022 semifinals, all thanks to McDonald's. Mackers, together and loving it. TNCs apply.